Uh, good morning. I always say that. I, have, I cannot start a sermon if I don't say that, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like I said, uh, we are going to begin this morning our preparation for Christmas. For the whole month of December, we are going to be focused on you know, the coming of our Lord. We're going to take a, a different topic each week, but we're going to each week uh, look at that. And it's perhaps the greatest source of joy and hope in the Christian life. Like I said, second only perhaps to uh, Easter, where God accomplished everything that he promised. And the rest of history just fills that in. But Christmas is the day when a child is given. That would be the hope of mankind. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of the best-known prophecies in uh, the Old Testament, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. This is a uh, wonderful prophecy. It's a prophecy loaded with significance for today, for eternity. It is a uh, prophecy that foretells the hope that we have within us. And I think to really understand the, the significance and the impact of this prophecy, we need to look at the context. So I want to start all the way at the beginning of chapter 8, Isaiah 8. And I want to move relatively quickly through that, just skimming the details so that it, it helps develop the context and prepare us for the, the power and the import of the prophecy there in chapter 9. Chapter 8 starts with God telling Isaiah to write down a near-term prophecy. That is a prophecy that was going to happen in just a couple years after he wrote it down. And he tells Isaiah to write this on a big scroll to use ordinary writing so that anybody who wants to check it out can. They can read it for themselves, see what God said was going to happen. Now, this prophecy had to do with the uh, destruction of northern Israel and Syria, whose capitals were uh, Samaria and Damascus. That's how they're referred to in chapter 8, as Samaria and Damascus. But uh, it's about their coming destruction. The way this uh, prophecy was to be handled was, first of all, like I said, uh, Isaiah was to write it out on a large scroll. Then he went and he found two witnesses, a guy by the name of Uriah the priest, another guy by the name of Zechariah. These two guys were friends of the king. They were very high court officials, friends of King Ahaz. They were not friends of Isaiah. In fact, they were opponents, sometimes enemies of Isaiah. So these two guys were unimpeachable witnesses that Isaiah wrote this down in advance. He wasn't dry-labbing it like some of us did in college, where you start with a result and then work your way back to, the, uh, to uh, fill in the, uh, the process that he got there. He wrote it down in advance. It's like he sealed it in a mayonnaise jar on Funk and Wagnall's front porch so that when that kind of time capsule was opened, they would know this is definitely from God. God had him seal it with a name, Macher Shalal Hashbaz, which literally means hurry to plunder, quick to spoil. Because this prophecy was about the coming unexpected plunder, spoil, destruction of, of Judah's two neighbors to the north. Okay, So that's what happened so far. So far he wrote it on a, on a scroll in advance. He sealed it with the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. He got a couple witnesses to notarize it, so it's all above board. 
And then we're told that he went to his wife and he conceived a child. That's what happened about a year after he wrote the prophecy down. So there's no suspicion again that he's working backwards. God told him to name that child Macher Shalal Chashbaz. <laughs> Poor kid. Hopefully they called him Macher or something like that for short. But again, that's the same name that he sealed the scroll with. And then Isaiah was to say to the people, before this child is old enough to say my mommy or my daddy, before he can say daddy or mommy, this prophecy will come to pass. In other words, before the child is what, about a year old, all of this is going to happen. And what was going on at the time was that Ahaz, the king, was getting all kinds of pressure and threats from the two northern countries, from Syria and Israel. In order to uh, protect himself, he was secretly appealing to Assyria, this huge civilization over on the Euphrates River, or to the east. Now, Isaiah had told him, don't do this. Trust God to take care of you. But uh, Ahaz would not listen. So God said, because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river. The king of Assyria with all his pomp, it will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Now the gently flowing waters of Shiloah was a little aqueduct, just kind of a trough that ran down the eastern side of Jerusalem from the spring of Gahon to the pool of Siloam. It was only about maybe 300 yards, 400 yards long. But this was the water source for all of Jerusalem. People would come every day, draw what they needed for their families out of the pools or even out of, out of the aqueduct. This was God's gentle, quiet, peaceful, unassuming provision, unimpressive provision for Israel, for the families there in Jerusalem. But they didn't want peaceful, unassuming, unimpressive. They wanted bigger and better and impressive. And so they were appealing to Assyria, which was on the, uh, the, the river, the Great River. That's how it's referred to in the Old Testament. The Euphrates River, huge, massive river, watered all of the Fertile Crescent to the east. It was the, the center of this enormous empire powerful civilization. You see, this is one of the, the principles at work here. That God just provides in a quiet, unassuming, gentle way, peaceful way. But the people want impressive. They want something that, that, that looks more significant. That, 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 that looks like it, it, it's going to really take care of them. See, God provided that little stream that, that, that provided everything they needed every day. But it wasn't impressive. It didn't look adequate. It didn't kind of stroke their egos so they could say, hey, look at our stream. And it's bigger than everybody else's. It's just this little tiny aqueduct. Not, in, not impressing anybody. God's ways are too mundane. God's ways don't seem impressive. They don't seem uh, adequate. And so people despise them, treat them as if they were nothing. People look at them as if it's simplistic and naive. 
But again, what God tells them is that this impressive Assyrian solution to their problem is going to get away from them. It's going to get out of control. The Assyrians are going to come in like a flood, swirling over them and around them, up to their neck. They're going to be drowning. It's out of control. You see, the solution is worse than the problem, which is almost always the case when we come up with our own solutions and leave God out. The solution is worse than the problem. In fact, what happened historically, uh, within a couple of years, 734 B.C., the Assyrians came through, wiped out Syria. Two years later, 732 B.C., they had invaded northern Israel, plundered northern Israel, came back and completely wiped them out, 722 B.C. And from 734 on, Judah, the country where Isaiah is writing this to the king, Judah was an oppressed, enslaved, vassal state of the Assyrians, whom they had invited in themselves. As Augustine said, doing without God is our undoing. It's true of Israel, it's true of us. But again, God appealed to them in advance. He said, man, don't do this. The words he uses, your plan will not stand. Your strategies will be shaken. It looks good now, man. It's logical. It seems like it's all going to fit, but it's going to backfire. Then he says, don't panic about what everybody's panicking about. Don't fear what they fear. Fear me. Listen to me. He says, treat me as holy. That means don't trust me and your plans. Trust me alone. Listen to me alone. God's warning and God's call. Then uh, he makes an oblique reference to Jesus. Uh, God talks about the fact that he's going to provide a rock, a stone for protection, a secure place. But people will stumble on it and they'll fall. You see, God will continue to provide what the people need. But it won't be what they demand. It won't be the way they want it. It won't be impressive enough. It won't stroke their egos. It won't be what they're saying that they need. And so they'll despise it. They'll ignore it. They'll stumble on it. They'll fall on it. And then God speaks to Isaiah and to the small group of disciples who are trying to hold on to the truth in the midst of all the confusion around them. He says they are a sign and a symbol to all the people. A sign and symbol of truth and hope in the midst of a, of a whole nation of people who, who were paying no attention to what God said. These people were trying to listen to God and hold on to God. And in that way, just be a quiet, gentle reminder of God, of His truth, of hope in Him. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this, verse 18. The Lord, he says, here I am, I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. The writer of Hebrews is is putting that in Jesus' mouth. This is Jesus talking about himself and us who are to be signs and symbols in our own societies. Quiet, gentle, constant reminders of God and of hope in him, of the truth. So God says to them and to to us in verse 19, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, 
Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on, the, on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And he says, don't follow them when they try to get you to follow their new age ways. See, the new age is really the old age revisited. It's at least as old as the Old Testament. I mean, these people were going to psychics and channelers. They're trying to get God's followers to do the same. They're saying, look, it really is amazing. This stuff works. These people were willing to, 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 to look anywhere for counselors who would give them direction and guidance. Anywhere but God. You see, we live in an age that's just the same. People want any kind of counselor, any kind of guidance, as long as it's more impressive, more dramatic than just the simple word of God. But what does God say? He says, to the law, to the testimony. Basically, go to the Bible. And then he says, if, these, uh, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. See, God's word is the measure of truth. And all of the, 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 the philosophy, all the psychology, all of the spirituality, if it doesn't agree with what God says in his word, then there's no light in it. It has no light. It is, it, it, it is really only leading to utter darkness. It's a snare. It's a trap. And as unpopular as it is to say that today, that's what God says. And if we are to be signs and symbols in our world, people who try to hold on to God and to the truth, then we must listen to what God says. Now let's look at the last two verses of chapter 8. And these describe kind of the sad condition of those who will not listen to God, who won't turn to God. This is where they end up. Distressed and hungry, they roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. And what an apt description of our day. People walking around distressed. The term distress means to be oppressed, crushed, weighed down, wearied from the struggle, spiritually starving. There's an ache so deep that it's despair. Walking around in hunger, it says. Nothing to satisfy that hunger. When all their alternatives trying to fill the void that only God can fill, when all those alternatives don't work, instead of coming to God in repentance, starting over, saying, God, I'm sorry I refused your love. Instead, they rage at God for being so unfair, for creating such a hard, harsh world, for, for, for not letting kind of their unrealistic plans and schemes be true. See, they rage at God. They continue to reject His sovereignty and His love. They curse the one who loves them. Looking down to the earth, they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. 
And they look around, man. It's, they just see horrors all around them. Crime gets worse. You know, pollution gets worse. Environmental policy gets worse. Violence gets worse. Uh, child abuse gets worse. Sexual perversion gets worse. Divorce gets worse. Uh, juvenile crime gets worse. Disease gets worse. Disasters get worse. Starvation gets worse. Corruption gets worse. Everywhere they look, it's just distress, darkness. God concludes with, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. As David Roper put it, he said, when we uh, don't accept the light, the light no longer shines on our way, showing us where to go. The light shines in our eyes, and we are totally blinded. You see, that's the condition of Isaiah's day. What a powerful description of Isaiah's day. What a powerful description of our day. You know, when you, when you feel the darkness, you know, our hearts ache for the light. That's the uh, context, the setting for the beautiful words of Isaiah chapter 9. Let me uh, just read 9, 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have made great the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What a promise of hope. Let's back up to verse 1, chapter 9. It says, but there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the northernmost tribes of Israel. They were some of the first to go into exile. Matthew quotes this in Matthew 4. When Jesus first leaves Nazareth, when he, when he becomes an adult, he first leaves Nazareth first place he goes is to Galilee. See, that was the honoring of Galilee, that the light of the world went there first to bring the light. Now, notice two things about the uh, grammar, starting with verse 2. First of all, it's no longer God speaking directly. It is Isaiah describing what he's seeing. And secondly, notice that it is in the past tense. Now, this is called the prophetic perfect. Because when God says something is going to happen, it is so absolutely sure that it's as if it has already happened. You can count on it. God's word is that reliable. And from our vantage point, it has happened. The light has come into the world. 
Those who would see that light escape the shadow of death. The the light has dawned in their hearts, in our hearts. Life is no longer filled with gloom and darkness and, and spiritual death. Instead, there is joy. He says, joy like, uh, like joy at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. It's kind of like the joy at winning the lottery, or at winning the World Series, or, or a small child lost in the mall when he sees his mommy. I mean, there's real joy. That's what God's plan is. That's what His design is. That joy replaced the gloom and the despair. And so often when we're building a case against God in our minds, we convince ourselves that all He wants to do is to control and to repress and to impoverish. And nothing could be further from the truth. His desire is to bring light where there's only darkness. To give greatness when there's insignificance. To give freedom where there's oppression. To give joy instead of the gloom. That's his heart. That's his desire. Then in verse 4 and 5, God or Isaiah mentions the defeat of Midian. I don't know how many of you know what he's talking about there. This is, this is Gideon. If you remember that guy, he had uh, 32,000 soldiers to withstand an attack from 120,000 Midianites. Gideon was afraid. I mean, he was so far outnumbered as to be absurd. So God comforted him by sending all but 300 of his soldiers home. So now here he is with 300 men facing 120,000. How silly. How naive. How absurd. But that's the way God said he wanted to do it. So Gideon trusted God. I think in light of this passage we're looking at, it's fascinating how God did it. What he did is he had all 300 of these guys light a torch and put a clay jar over the torch so no light escaped. And these 300 men surrounded the Midian camp with their covered-up torches real quietly. And then on signal, they broke the jars so that all of a sudden the light shone. And suddenly the Midian camp was flooded with light. The Midianites panicked. They were confused. They ended up running into each other, hacking each other to bits, killing each other, other than a few who ran off, and then the, uh, the Israelites chased them down. You see, God defeated the Midianites with light. He didn't use military hardware. He didn't use all of this military strategy. In fact, he says, you know, the boots and all of the uniforms, all that stuff is just fuel for burning. It's useless against the light. That's God's design, God's plan. It's God's style again. The the gently flowing waters of Shaloah, refreshing God's people. 300 men with clay pots and torches, defeating 120,000 Midianites, men of war. Man, how silly, how naive. That's God's way. Gently, quietly, unassuming, unimpressive, doesn't stroke men's egos. It doesn't, you know, kind of inflate their pride, but it is more powerful than all of the might 
of man. That sets us up for what he does now. Look what he did. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. In the face of all the forces of darkness, all the powers of this world, God sends a little baby. I mean, a child, an infant, little baby boy, helpless little baby boy. This is to be the light of the world. And this little baby is to defeat all of the darkness. How naive. How absurd. How simplistic. It says the government shall be upon his shoulders. But who is this child? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Wonderful Counselor. Literally that says he is a wonder of a counselor. He's the one who knows the human heart. He knows human need human feelings, human longings, human ambitions and desires. He knows life. And therefore, he is, his counsel brings life. His counsel is wise. It will stand. His strategies will not be overturned. He gives loving counsel. His counsel doesn't inflate our pride, doesn't stroke our egos. In fact, it brings us to humility and brokenness. But it is wonderful counsel. It is astounding. It is supernatural in the things that he accomplishes. And we obey his counsel. He exalts a man while giving the glory to God. Now again, we live in a day when everyone longs to have a counselor who can free them from the confusion and the pain. We all seek a counselor who understands us, who is compassionate. We seek a counselor who will be effective and bring healing to our lives and our families and our communities. This baby is that counselor. Wonder of a counselor. It says he is mighty God. He is God incarnate. He is the creator. He spoke and the stars sprang into being. He lifted his little finger and the mountains were formed. He breathed and the world teemed with life. He is the God almighty. The powerful one. The God of power. He has the power to accomplish what he says he's going to do. To make his plans come true. He is not only wise as a counselor, he is powerful. In fact, some translators translate this, God the strong one, the hero God. You see, we look around us in our world and we see all the chaos and confusion. And we say, yeah, God's got nice plans, but is he going to ever be able to pull it off? We look at our own lives and, and, and the struggles we have and the obstacles we face and we wonder if he really has what it takes to protect us. Sure, he's got good plans. Sure, he's wise. But is he strong enough? We need someone who is able to protect us. 
to take care of us? Who's strong enough? Again, this baby is the mighty God. He is able, more than able. So he's wise, he's powerful, but does he really care? He is the everlasting Father. He is everlastingly a loving Father. That means all the time, always, in every instance, He loves as a Father. Now, I uh, can tell you unequivocally, I love my children. There is nothing I honestly would not do for them. I would die for them, I'm convinced. Well, He did. He loves us that much. Our hearts ache for a father's love. Our culture recognizes that we, we, we hurt, we are confused because our fathers never came through for us. They never could. The hunger in our hearts for that father's love is too great for any man to fill. Some fathers did better than others, but none could fill that longing. Only he can. He is love. The prodigal son said, I will arise and go to my father. And that father was waiting, watching, ready to run to his child with open arms and to smother him in kisses and to enfold him in his love. Your heavenly father is watching, waiting, ready to give what you need at the core of your being, to be significant to someone, to be respected, to be loved. This baby is that father. He's the prince of peace. He's the prince. He's the ruler. The government of the universe is on his shoulders, not ours. Remember when uh, Larry Crabb was here, he gave some advice to men. Never call your wife governor of the universe. She will not like that. He told a story how he discovered that in his own experience when he thought she was trying to control too much. But I think we all at times somehow think that the governance of the universe is on our shoulder. It's not. It's on his. Solving the world's problems is his job, not ours. Our job is to obey our prince. He will bring healing and wholeness as we obey him. He's the prince of peace. He accomplishes his goals by using peace. He allowed people to abuse him, to, to kill him, and he never struck them down, even though he is the mighty God. He continues to accomplish his purposes by peace, by love and kindness, patience, gentleness. And what he brings to his subjects is peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other as we listen to Him. Humble ourselves before Him and obey Him. Let Him love through us. And He gives peace within. As we submit to Him, as we rest in His wisdom and His, His goodness, His power, we begin to find ourselves becoming more and more like Him, righteous. The writer of, uh, of Psalm 85 says, Righteousness and peace kiss. The two go together. 
as we find ourselves being freed, being more and more like Him, resting in His wisdom and love and goodness, obeying Him, submitting to Him, finding ourselves becoming more like Him, then righteousness brings peace. See, our world is starving for peace. It is aching for peace of all kinds. Peace in families, peace in cities, peace in nations, peace in our hearts. And this baby is our peace. Isaiah ends by telling us that there is no end to the growing of his government. His kingdom is expanding. More and more people are coming to put their faith in Him as their Lord and Savior. It's growing all over the world. It will continue to grow. He will continue to establish righteousness and justice in our hearts, the way we treat each other, the way we treat others. That will continue to grow until our Prince comes again. Our Prince is coming again. We'll establish His kingdom in its final state. He says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now the word zeal there means intense passion. It's used of all kinds of passion. It's used of sexual passion. passion. It's used of anger. It's used of any kind of just overwhelming, compelling passion. And what he's saying is God is passionate about this. He is committed he feels intensely. In fact, there's nothing about which he feels more strongly. He's going to do it. It's as good as done. Bet your life on it. So what we are preparing for to celebrate later this month is the birth of this child, the son who was given. And again, like in Isaiah's day, our world is, is covered with darkness. The light has come into the world, but the world did not comprehend it. John tells us in the first chapter of John. Again, like in Isaiah's day, people today reject God's peaceful, gentle, unassuming, unimpressive ways. The rock that he provided, people stumble over. They, they refuse, they disdain the little gentle waters of Shiloah. They refuse the way of Gideon. They reject the child. They will not come to God's word as the measure of truth. And so distressed and hungry, they roam through the land. When they are famished, they become enraged. And looking upward, curse their king and their God. Then they look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they are thrust into utter darkness. Our world aches for light. It refuses to turn to the light. So the light of truth is shining in their eyes. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Don't be blinded by the light. Prepare your hearts. Our world desperately needs that light, needs the child. Long lay the world in sin and darkness pining. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So as we prepare to celebrate 
for Christmas. Let's do that by preparing to embrace the light, to recognize that this is the answer to the world's problems. This little baby, we uh, at our house have a little, unfortunately, it's just the head of the baby. <laughs> it's rapid swaddling clothes. And one day, one of my daughters went up and picked it up and the head fell off. And what a trauma when poor little Jesus' head fell off. But that baby, that, that, that doll symbolizes the coming of this little baby. Insignificant. Naive. I mean, unimpressive. We wanted an army. We wanted a, a, a king on a huge horse that just filled the skies. He sent a little baby. It's a reminder to us to open our hearts to God's gentle, peaceful, unimpressive, unassuming ways. To accept, embrace that baby now grown who died on the cross for your sins. To come back to his word as the measure of truth. May we, as signs and symbols for all to see, celebrate his coming in a way that bears testimony to the light. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. May our world see that light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am uh, overwhelmed when I think just of you as the wonderful counselor. You are mighty God. You are everlasting Father. You are Prince of Peace. And yet when uh, Mary looked at you as a little baby, Joseph looked at you, all they could see was a little baby. And Lord, so often in my life, the truth that you give me to deal with is so unimpressive, so mundane. I've always known it. So often I despise it. That the solutions that you have, that uh, you plan to work through and release your power, I walk away from. Because they don't stroke my ego. They don't make me feel good about how smart and how strong I am. Lord, uh, we just praise you that you went ahead with your plan. You sent the baby. And that baby grew. And we beheld his life and his light. Lord, remove the despair, the darkness from our light. Fill us with your joy. And may that joy shine as a sign, a symbol, a testimony to those around us this month that our hope has come, has filled our hearts, has flooded our lives with light. We worship you, your wisdom, your incredible power. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.